It's Friday, May 1st, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a limited-run podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Unorthodox, we speak to Deborah Feldman about her book-turned-hit Netflix series and about the rich inner life she developed under oppressive circumstances. Then it's time for tough questions about free speech in the pandemic with our CEO, Suzanne Nossel. This week, what can YouTube do to stop a campaign of online harassment against a U.S. Army reservist? I'm Stephen Fee all that coming up on the pen pod. In 2012, Deborah Feldman's autobiography, Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots, documented her escape from an ultra-religious Jewish community in Brooklyn. Now her story is the basis for a Netflix series by the same name. Deborah Feldman joins me now. Hi there, Deborah. Hi. So first, um, you know, we're all sort of social distancing right now. Where, where are you in the world? I'm I'm in my living room in my apartment in Berlin. Gotcha. Yeah. So for folks who don't know a lot about the Hasidic community or haven't watched the show or read the book, can you explain a little bit about what the community is and the role of women in it especially? Yes. So this community was founded after the war by a rabbi from a town on the border between Hungary and Romania, a rabbi who previously had already been uh, rooted uh, pretty deeply in the Hasidic movement, which is a which is a sort of radical, mystical Jewish movement that started in Eastern Europe in the 18th century. But this rabbi who had already been sort of radicalizing before the war, he came to New York shortly after, after having survived via Kastner's transport. And he gathered a bunch of Holocaust survivors around him at that time with this message of, you know, the Holocaust was a punishment. And I had warned about this punishment that was coming because it was God's last uh, warning uh, for us to avoid the apocalypse or the end of the world um, because he, f- he felt that Jews were being punished for assimilating and for you know, becoming Zionists, for basically thinking they could end their own exile instead of waiting patiently for them to deserve the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so you know, this community was founded by survivors, but people often mistake it for something, you know, old world and romantic because the costumes are very similar to that, you know, which ultra-Orthodox Jews wore before the war. But the ideology in this community is actually very modern and very different. And it, it is also uh, an ideology that it, that develops in response to modernity, sort of in tandem to it. So as the world has gotten more modern and more progressive since World War II, especially when you have the civil rights movement and feminism, um, the community has responded towards that modernity by becoming more extreme and more um, closed off from the world. And that that also means, though, that the rules aren't necessarily stable. I mean, the, the community is founded on this idea that all Jewish traditions and rituals have to be reinterpreted in a much more extreme way in order to appease the, the God that was angry enough to cause the Holocaust. Um, mm-hmm. But also these rituals are constantly being reinterpreted. So I remember when I was a child um, discovering a, a photo of my aunts when they were children in my grandmother's things and asking her how it was possible that their skirts were so short because they were, they were a few inches above the knee. And mm-hmm. I knew in my community that there was you know, no chance of, of a woman wearing a skirt shorter than 10 inches below the knee. So I remember asking her, um, you know, how could this be possible? And she looked at the photo briefly and she sort of waved it off and said, oh, you know, back then it was less strict. And that was the first moment in my childhood where I realized, okay, the rules aren't stable. They're constantly changing. And I, you know, I write in in the beginning of my book also that when I entered the eighth grade in my school, um, 
you know, there was this new rule introduced that women could no longer wear knit fabrics directly on their body. They would have to wear a woven fabric underneath it because knit fabric would show the form of the body. So, you know, throughout my lifetime, new rules were constantly being introduced. And very often these rules had to do with the modesty of women. Mm -hmm. So, so that, you know, if bad things happen, um, this is often blamed on women's dress. And right now you have communities in Israel and America with, you know, uh, placards hanging on the walls in this community, basically saying coronavirus is, is a punishment because our women are not modest enough. Wow. So, I mean, I guess, why do you think it is that this miniseries has really sort of taken off and, and, and of course, the revival of interest in your book, especially right now? I mean, as you say, when there is this sort of, you know, reactionary moment to what's going on, especially in, in, in ultra-religious um, Jewish communities. Right. So I, I obviously did not expect the series to be this successful or to receive this much feedback. I mean, obviously, okay, Netflix is an amazing platform with right. 150 million viewers and it's like, you know, worldwide simultaneously. So of course we knew what a goldmine we had there. We, we really knew that, you know, because of Netflix, this series, which normally might not reach very many viewers, would have the potential to do so. But the question, if this potential is fulfilled, you know, if, if, if viewers on this platform will have so much to choose from, you know, choose this show and then not only choose it, but, you know, are totally wild and passionate about it afterwards. It's just not something we expected. And I, I, I am pretty firmly convinced that the intensity of the reaction is a result of the corona crisis. It is a result of this weird mm-hmm situation where we're all kind of locked in and we have nothing to do and we're we're just paying much more attention to you know media that's that's streaming directly into our home and also i think we're in this weird vulnerable place where we are looking for stories that are both speaking to our circumstances but also somehow comforting us and somehow i mm-hmm. wonder if unorthodox hasn't you know by accident managed to touch that nerve you know exactly and um you know when when my first book was published, I went through something similar, if on a much smaller scale. I remember having a really hard time selling the book. I, I sold the book during the last financial crisis. And I got 25 wow. rejections, um, you know, when oh, I sent my God. expose out. And my agent was really, um, you know, down on me. She was not uh, very positive about our chances. And kind of out of the blue, the book did sell um, in a very unique way. And um Later, when I submitted the manuscript, I remember people from the publishing house sort of gently warning me that I should keep my expectations low, that this kind of topic is very niche and, you know, maybe it'll do well in New York, but we shouldn't expect much beyond that. And we kind of went to publication with a pretty small print run, you know, which is common for a debut author who's unknown. And so, you know, we were not prepared for um, Unorthodox as a book to have the success it had. It did have like immediate overnight success. And I think that the series has been a kind of magnified or amplified version of that experience. So I feel like I've been through this before. There's a bit of deja vu, (laughs) Um, but I'm really thrilled. I'm really thrilled beyond words for so many reasons. But I mean, you know, a big reason is understanding that this story has now become part of like mainstream cultural dialogue. You know, it is completely, you know, changing the cultural conversation and um, expanding the horizons of the cultural conversation. And I mean, it's an amazing feeling as an author to to transcend like traditional boundaries of culture and language. It's just really cool. 
Yeah. And you get to have that experience somewhat twice, which is amazing. Um, I, I'm curious, and you can also knock down the premise of this question entirely, but I, you know, I, my hunch is that especially when people are in this moment of lockdown, um, people who are in perhaps more oppressive households are feeling that isolation even more so than maybe they usually do not being able to leave the house, especially. I, I wonder if you, if you, a think that that's true and, and B, if you do, you know, what, what, what would you tell people in that kind of oppressive situation right now? Well, I, I probably can only speak to my own experience in that regard. I know a lot about what it feels like to be locked in. Obviously, I spent my whole childhood feeling locked in and having to invent excuses to leave the house. Um, so I, it's very familiar to me. And even in the years after I left, um, in the early years, um, I remember being locked in by circumstances. I remember living um, you know, in poverty and not really having... Um, you know, and, you know, the right connections or, you know, enough relationships or resources to really live a life beyond my four walls. Um, and I guess I learned from those experiences to survive by creating a very rich inner world and um, mm. a very, you know, rich life within the mind. And I had forgotten about that um, because I've just done so much in, in the following years. And, you know, when we went into lockdown or whatever version of lockdown we have in Berlin, I, I did panic a little at the beginning. I mean, it did scare me. It brought back some old memories. I thought I had kind of finally left that behind me and sort of escaped that feeling. And I felt a little bit like my past was coming back to crush me. Um, wow. But after you know a few days passed, I realized, wait a second, if there's anybody who's equipped to deal with this moment, it's me. Like, I'm lucky. I can draw on these resources. I can completely reorient my perspective and, and, and my everyday you know, life routine um, to sort of make the most of those resources, because of course the circumstances are changed. And so, I guess the only thing I could I could ever tell people, and what I'm telling people right now in my life who are having a hard time, is is you know using this opportunity to learn to create this this rich inner self and these sort of this inner world. Because later, when things slowly go back to the new normal. I, I think those skills will remain very valuable um, and not everyone gets an opportunity to develop them. So it's hard and it will feel very hard at the beginning. And I think we put up a lot of resistance. But if we break through that wall of resistance, um, it is, it's not so scary as we imagine it will be. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I, I, it makes me want to go back and read the book again, so I can start uh, drawing from your ideas. Um, so, so lastly, what are you reading or watching right now that's either giving you some distraction or context, or that's just entertaining for you right now? Okay, so I'm reading um, this sort of this classic. It's written by an Austrian writer named Marlin Haushofer. Um, mm. She wrote uh, she wrote many really interesting works, and most of her works are autobiographical, even though they're fiction. And um, her most famous work is called The Wall, um, and it's it's considered a European classic. I'm not sure how well known it is beyond Germany, but it's certainly very well known in Germany. Of all her works, it's the most well known, and it's this um, absolutely incredible novel that just sucks you in without making you realize it about this sort of middle-aged woman who goes to uh, visit uh, friends of hers in some hunting lodge in the Swiss Alps and um, finds herself, after waking up the next morning, completely alone in this hunting lodge and discovers that an invisible wall um, is now all around this, this space and she can't get out and she can see that on the other side of the wall, some tremendous catastrophe has happened and everyone is dead. 
And the novel is narrated as a diary. So she's writing a diary about a year or so later after the, the wall has come to be. And she talks about continuing to survive on her own, alone in this hunting lodge, shut off from the rest of the world, which apparently has been completely destroyed in some kind of catastrophe. And the book is, you know, it sounds terrifying, but it's beautiful it and, <laughs> and it's beautiful and it's meditative. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's an absolutely stunning book. Um, it speaks so much to the meaning of life, even when everything has been taken from you. Um, it speaks so much to, to the beauty that, that is just in being and nothing else. Um, mm-hmm. And it is also, I mean, it was, it was long thought of as a feminist novel because it was thought of as, um, you know, a, a book that is, you know, a metaphor for the, the isolation of, of women um, or mm-hmm. like or, or, or women's ab- not ability, not uh, sorry, women's inability to to really be heard or to be to be seen by the world. But, um, you know, Marlon herself disagreed with that in- interpretation and, and, it, and it has been disputed today. But there is something of that there as well that readers might pick up on. And in general, I've always seen the book as a kind of fantasy and a kind mm-hmm. of soothing retreat from the very hectic, uh, you know, daily life that used to be our reality. But I find that now it's working for me in a new way. It's, um, it's again, teaching me about this inner world that we can create where we, we discover we're actually emotionally self-sufficient and we rely on very little um, in order to feel like our lives are rich and full of meaning. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, another one to add to the reading list, Deborah Feldman, the series and book are both called Unorthodox. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Now to our weekly segment, Tough Questions, where we put tricky questions about free speech to our CEO, Suzanne Nossel. And she joins me now. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. All right. So first, CNN had a story this week about a woman who's become the target of a pretty ludicrous conspiracy theory on YouTube that basically she brought the coronavirus to China. Uh, She's an army reservist um, and she and her husband have been doxxed. They've been subject to really brutal online harassment. Um, And one of the conspiracy theorists who's been spreading these rumors has actually been even running ads against his videos on YouTube. Uh, YouTube since disallowed them, but mostly because they ran afoul of their COVID-19 specific disinformation rules. I'm wondering what kind of responsibility do platforms like YouTube have in cases like this? And and what resource or what recourse rather do victims of these types of smears have? Yeah, it's a tough case. I mean, she seemingly has really been absolutely defamed. She attended a a military uh, athletic tournament in Wuhan back in the fall. And I don't know how the conspiracy theorist got onto her as the potential source of this, but she's basically being uh, trumpeted uh, as, as a typhoid Mary of the COVID-19 outbreak. And she is being tormented online and her whole family is involved and it's death threats and just the nastiest, most venal messages and you know a, a sense of harassment that I think would make anyone feel intimidated. And the platforms have been slow to wake up to the danger of these conspiracy theorists, Um, Alex Jones being the most famous of them. He was eventually kicked off of most social media platforms for sort of a combination of perving, 
hateful speech, violating uh, guidelines against uh, kind of incitement against particular groups and a pretty high threshold because I think what the platforms find is that when they do silence and disable these accounts, you know, then there's all sorts of backlash from a free speech perspective. And, you know, I think in this case, what uh, it really brings out is that our standards for what constitute online harassment do not match the digital age. They require that one person sort of be doing this pervasively and deliberately. And so for him to just simply put out these ideas, you know, maybe that's not so bad. He may be crazy. He may be lying. But, you know, we protect that kind of speech under the First Amendment. And we, we wouldn't want to empower or ask YouTube and Facebook and Twitter to take down all lies and be a kind of uh, arbiter of truth uh, in that way. But what happens is, you know, he puts up his video and then there's this torrent of response, you know, it's thousands of other people and each one of them may be only posting one comment. So that in itself, you know, on their part wouldn't constitute harassment. It just might be an offhand comment of a couple of sentences, but the cumulative collective effect of it is thunderous and terrifying. And our laws really haven't woken up to that. And I think the platform's policies haven't either to recognize that when a collective amasses in this way, it can have a harassing effect and that they need to take action to disrupt it. I think in this case, you know, it, it, it seems quite clearly defamatory. Her family seems to be saying they don't want to litigate it. They think that, uh, you know, is an endless headache and they're probably right on that score. But when you have an unsubstantiated claim that, you know, clearly is going to make somebody into a, a pariah uh, and is yielding this kind of backlash, I, I don't think there would be much objection if YouTube were to take it down. There'd be outcry from the supporters of this individual conspiracy theorist. But I think most YouTube users uh, and free speech experts would think that was a reasonable exercise of the platform's discretion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to move on to uh, an issue that came up this week with Michael Moore. Uh, Basically, a group of climate scientists uh, and and other uh, climate activists have called for platforms to pull a new uh, documentary from Michael Moore that takes aim at the green movement. Uh, The film's called Planet of the Humans, um, and its critics have said it's dangerous. They've said it's misleading. um, And Moore's been accused of peddling energy industry talking points and falsehoods about the green movement. What's your take on this? Yeah, I think this is a interesting and kind of disturbing manifestation of sort of the escalating fight against misinformation and disinformation. And we've seen in the COVID-19 context, platforms taking a much more aggressive approach to removing and flagging content that gives uh, false information about uh, health and the pandemic. And a lot of people have applauded that, you know, and I think for good reason, I think it's helped foster a better understanding of the steps that we need to take to stay safe and to contain the contagion. But there is kind of a dark side, which is I think that this idea that misinformation, disinformation ought to be removed from circulation is gaining currency. And here you see what really is a kind of internecine fight among the environmentalists who have different perspectives. You know, Michael Moore is, you know, uh, I mean, maybe he's become a corporate show, but that's certainly not, you know, that's not how he's made his career. He's been, you know, this uh, vociferous, persistent, uh, gnat-like critic of corporations uh, doing this whole series of exposés in his work. And yeah, there's a dispute about the factual accuracy of what he's presenting in this latest film. Uh, You know, that's contestable. I think his critics may be right. I'm not an environmentalist. But to suggest that the film should be 
removed from circulation, you know, rather than those ideas debated, disputed, facts brought out, you know, he could be discredited, you can bring forth other experts, you know, you could prove him wrong in the court of public opinion. And that's really what should be happening here. So I find it kind of alarming that we seem to be coming quicker to call for the removal of disinformation and misinformation. And, it, you know, it's difficult because I think there's some context, COVID being one, where that may be a legitimate approach. But, you know, the minute you sort of bring that out into the mainstream and say all kinds of political ideas, environmental ideas, you know, that somebody can characterize as dangerous or damaging should be taken above debate uh, outside the realm of our discourse and and shut down and silenced and pulled off platforms, you know, that to me is censorious. So I think we need to be very careful here about the lesson that we learn from the approach to misinformation and disinformation in the COVID era. I think there's a real risk that it becomes a justification for calls to pull down all sorts of other content and to shut down debate. Yeah. Well, and lastly, you know, it might have gotten a little bit lost amid the shuffle, but this Sunday is is World Press Freedom Day. And usually it's a time that we reflect on the challenges facing reporters globally. I'm wondering how PEN America is approaching it this year. Yeah. I mean, we always are focused on what's happening uh, around the world in terms of writers and journalists. And we see at this moment, you know, some really worrisome and kind of retrogressive policies, the shutting down of all print newspapers uh, in Iran uh, and in Egypt, uh, journalists being targeted, scientists being targeted for speaking out to journalists. And I think it's critical to remember that our whole understanding of this pandemic, you know, really kind of comes through the lens of journalism and reported news. And we are absolutely dependent on the role of journalists in helping us sort through fact from fiction, understand the science, know how to keep ourselves safe. So we at PEN America really kind of flag the role of journalists as first responders to this pandemic. You know, they are out there getting their work done. They are uh, included in the category here in the U.S. uh, of essential workers, you know, right alongside the Healthcare workers, the grocery store workers, uh, people who produce our food, who do deliveries, journalists are in that category because there's a recognition that information is an essential currency at this moment. And one area that we've spotlighted that is new for us this year, our local journalism, we're doing a, a kind of wall of honor focusing on local heroes, journalists who are covering COVID across the country and doing so often at risk to their own personal safety. You know, they're telling the stories about how different governments are approaching this, you know, how the decisions are being made, who's listening to the scientists and who isn't, who's following the rules. You know, these many stories we've heard of uh, officials and, and prominent people like Ivanka Trump breaking the rules. So it's the journalists who are out there breaking the rules in terms of quarantine. It's the journalists who are out there covering the story and holding officials accountable and keeping our democracy and our electorate informed at this moment. So I think, you know, even with everything that we have going on, it is extremely important to sort of take a moment for this World Press Freedom Day on Sunday to celebrate some of the unsung heroes of the pandemic, you know, those who are out there telling the story and writing, you know, also writing the first draft of history. I mean, this is something we're going to be analyzing for a long, long time. And those journalistic accounts will be the basis for much of that.
Yeah, absolutely. And all of that will be on our website, uh, pen.org. Um, so Suzanne, uh, thanks so much. The CEO of Pen America. She's also author of the forthcoming book, Dare to Speak. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And that's our episode for Friday, May 1st, 2020. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily Dare newsletter, where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you Monday. <laughs>